Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 14. And we just kind of developed a very simple prompt, which was, if you could take me on a tour of your town, where would you take me and why? And it became interesting really fast because what we realized was, you know, you could call it a walking tour, you could call it a walking interview, but that wasn't really getting to the heart of it. What we realized is that people were telling stories. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Hope you're doing well. Today, uh, really fun episode today. Um, Really unique episode, I should say. I sit down with Dr. Kimberly Powell who is just a wicked smart individual, uh, master's from Harvard University, her PhD is from Stanford University, uh, and when she was younger, she actually got the opportunity to work with uh, Howard Gardner, who um, many of you might know his theory uh, called Multiple Intelligences Theory, which he laid out in the book that he authored titled Frames of Mind. Uh, she actually got a chance to work with him uh, early in her career, and now her career is kind of more focused on working with uh, communities that have experienced some sort of uh, social or cultural or uh, racial marginalization. Um, and she's able to do this through artwork and through art. And uh, we dive into one of uh, the unique ways that she's been able to give voices to uh, these communities, which is through the art of walking uh, and through that uh, placemaking. Uh, so those two... Um, that concept of placemaking we'll, we'll dive into a little bit today. But um, yeah, really, really unique uh, episode. Really uh, just a, a new way of looking at what is walking. <laughs> uh, something that we do so regularly, but still a uh, new way to view it. And uh, she actually is able to, uh, she does a great job of giving really specific examples for different classes as to how you can uh, implement the art of walking into your classroom. So uh, we will definitely dive into that in a little bit. But as always, uh, everything that is mentioned on this episode, you can find on our show notes page, which is at jabadoo.com slash show 14. And we've got a Facebook group. Come check us out. Facebook.com slash groups slash jabadoo. Uh, really starting to kick up um, with people coming in and uh, having these conversations about evidence-based strategies and mindsets and uh, tools that you can use in your classroom. So please come join us there. And finally, we've got a newsletter, an email newsletter. How exciting. <laughs> but it's really just me uh, sending it out, reminding you that I've got an episode that's coming out or um, uh, I'm going to be starting to put out some videos and some more content. So uh, if you would like to be on that newsletter, go check us out. Again, jabadoo.com, and you can sign up for that newsletter right there on the homepage. All righty, here we go. Let's bring her in. All right, so we have Dr. Kimberly Powell with us today on the Jabadoo Education Podcast. Dr. Powell is, are you ready for this, professor of education, arts education, music education, and Asian studies. <laughs> Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, I got that right. But you're also, you're, you're jointly appointed with uh, the College of Ed and the College of Arts and Architecture. Yep, that's right. correct. Yeah, so you are a, a woman of multiple trades. <laughs> it all makes sense in my head and hopefully yeah. <laughs> in my research, but yes. 
Well, I I'm have excited. a lot of interdisciplinary interests. Which I think, I mean, anytime uh, somebody's able to do that, it, it opens up your perspective a little bit and gives you, uh, I think, a clearer lens. Um, maybe not uh, as deep as a microscope will get, but at least you get a bigger picture and a clearer image of, of kind of the everything that's, that's going on. So um, it's very cool. And in your bio, I can't wait to dig into this. It says you are a curriculum theorist and an educational anthropologist. Yes. So we will, yeah. I'll, I'll leave that as an open loop so that everybody has to listen for the rest of the podcast to see how we answer what that actually means. There you go. <laughs> Professional podcasting 101. <laughs> I'll be interested right. in knowing what it means to by the end there of this conversation. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, Dr. Powell, why don't we start um, just where every story starts, and that's the beginning. So let us know what was your experience coming through school, um, maybe some teachers that left an imprint on you, uh, kind of some of the things that you did and how you ended up on the path that you are on. Sure. Um, well, hindsight is always wisdom, right? So it's easy to construct a story, you know, at this point in my life, looking back and cherry picking what I want to tell. But I will say that I, I was a kid who loved school. Not every day, not every subject, but mm -hmm. I mostly loved school. I loved, um, I loved learning in that, in that sense of being in a classroom and opening a book or whatever it was. Um, I will also say that, you know, elementary school years were rough on me. I had some bullying going on and um, school, you know, my teachers made it a safe space for me and um, I found my worth in doing school. And in particular, I found my worth in music and in the art classroom. Um, music became an early love for me um, through uh, my my uh, my family attended you know church in my hometown, and the church was you know very into singing choirs and hymnals and all of that. Uh, and so that you know joined the choir there, joined the chorus. Um, uh, in my elementary school, and I never stopped. I just found, you know, in a funny sense, I really found my voice through singing, mm -hmm. and I kept doing it. Um, played piano, accompanied the school chorus, kept getting support for that, right? Like, oh, you're, you, this is something you, you do well, right? You should, yeah. you know, think about it more kind of thing. <laughs> um, and art too. I found that, you know, art, uh, visual art for me was a place where um, it was a bit more meditative for me and in, in the way that it worked in my life. Um, you know, I journaled a lot as a kid with sketching as opposed to writing. Um, so I think, you know, as I moved through high school, I really, I just hung, I was that arts kid, you know, <laughs> I was in drama club. Me too. I was in, were you? Yeah. yeah. Drama, marching band, all the good stuff. Yeah. Oh, marching band too. Hey, if I could have squeezed that in, I, I would have done that. My, my son is a, is in drum line for our high school. Marching there you go. Band. Yeah. Somehow it. I was able to squeeze in marching band and soccer, which wow. both are during the same season. So I don't think I slept much. Yeah, you fall. couldn't. Have. That's that's impressive. Yeah, Thank I you. did. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. I did um, chorus and drama club all through high school, and um, I was also enrolled in visual arts. My um, the teachers that inspired me a lot. There are many. Um, I would say Mrs. Luminello, who is my elementary school music teacher, um, who then later became. Um, I think it was my junior senior year 
became my high school music teacher, which was yeah. lovely to have that again by her. Yeah, she's yeah. Uh, Drew Luminello is her name. Um, my art teacher, um, John Sullivan, who I'm still on Facebook with, <laughs> <laughs> he was a real inspiration to me. He was uh, my art teacher, but he was, he is actually an incredibly creative person. And he was also the director of the drama club. He was also highly musical. Um, just, you know, I found my home in the arts wing of the high school. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I also discovered that not only did I like to do that stuff, I like to study about it. So another big inspiration for me was my psychology class in high school. I was, oh, wow. I was weirdly excited about psychology by the age of 12. <laughs> like, you know, I, was, I just really wanted to study how, you know, how do people you know, come to do the things they do. Yeah. How do they make sense of the world? What makes people tick? Um, I've definitely and, become more and more fascinated with psychology over time. Have you? I think, I think it's just, it's because it's so new in terms of scientific research, in terms of like human history, mm -hmm. um, figuring out what the brain actually does and, and how people think uh, is relatively new research. And I think there's, there's some excitement on that frontier. Um, but it, I don't think it's it's super far fetched because if you look at like kind of like you said with with drama and music and art, all of these uh, classes are are very community uh, bait. Like you you pull in a strong community in classes like that. At least that for for my perspective, like some of my best friends from high school were in my and we're in drama club and in and in choir and, and in band over top of soccer obviously there's camaraderie in soccer and, and you know I, I loved you know my teammates and stuff like that but the people that I keep in touch with are the ones that you create this emotional bond over through uh arts because it's it I think it is so so emotional uh all the stuff that you're doing and all the stuff that you're talking about in those classes so it, it kind of ties together with the notion of being interested in psychology because uh, you know it's just everything ties together <laughs> yeah it's that's really well said and and i would i would also say that the arts are incredibly demanding um they're often dismissed as being you know whatever non-academic subjects or non-core subjects or the special subjects but i in high school, I became really interested in how they were really rigorous academic pursuits, right? They require a kind of intelligence of us. And um, I found myself in these debates with other high school kids. So when I was in high school, one of the big conversations that was happening is, gee, you know, the kids who are doing well in school with their GPAs and all that happen to be, you know, the band kids, you know, kids who are taking a lot of music classes, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was a, a debate that raged around, uh, I think some high school students actually even went to, you know, the band teacher and maybe, I don't know if they made it as far as the principal's office to kind mm -hmm. of petition, like, you know, they should be getting credit for these classes. These are fun classes. They're not demanding. And, um, I, I know I wasn't in the room for this, but I know that our band directors, you know, it was like a teachable moment, right? <laughs> As we call them, like sat with a student and told him exactly what was involved in learning. And I, I knew that for myself, um, that there, I couldn't quite articulate why or how, but I knew that 
you know, music, for example, was incredibly demanding intellectually, you know, it's, you know, pitch discrimination, it's about like fractions in space, it's about understanding um, historical context of music. And um, it, it kind of fueled the fire for me in college to double major in music and psychology. If I could have triple majored, I would have added art to that. Uh, I've always I, I would have quadrupled <laughs> and quintuple majored probably if I could have, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I was I was really, really interested in, you know, how what happens with your brain on music? What happens with your brain on art? And it was then that I this is back in the 80s and I started to read uh, Howard Gardner's book on multiple intelligences called mm -hmm. Frames of Mind. I think that was published in 1984. I was a student in 1986. I think I read it in college and it kind of, it's kind of set my world on fire because it gave me the words I needed so badly and the framework I wanted so badly to understand what it was I always knew about the arts was that they were serious and rigorous pursuits and so yeah. you know he framed these proclivities as being about intelligence right like he says right. if we're gonna talk about being you know um, intelligent about calculating formulas right doing math or writing or reading we might as well say we've got intelligences for you know um kinesthetic ability right. right and musical ability and yeah. spatial ability all that and i think for for those of you who who haven't heard of it before I, i'm not super familiar with it but i've obviously heard the term of uh, multiple intelligences but there is is there seven that he kind of lines out yeah there the original were seven i think he ended up with uh, nine then okay. the number not being is so important as yeah. just kind of the justification right. And right, like he he also worked with um, uh, I think he worked at a veterans hospital in Boston. I'd have to actually do a quick fact check on mm -hmm. that one, but I believe it was the VA hospital in Boston. And he was looking at brain damaged patients, and he was mm -hmm. collecting data from multiple sources. The interesting thing about his work, which I later went to work for him, so I'm oh. setting up the story here a little bit because I was just so fascinated by yeah. all this. I want to learn more. So, um, you know, I put in my resume and waited, I think it was like nine months or almost a year until I got a call that said, hey, you want to come work for us for, you know, a little bit of money on a grant? <laughs> I said, of course, you know, yeah. <laughs> I dropped what I was doing and I, I went. But... Uh, he later added an intelligence that had the, the ability to classify like um, Charles Darwin and okay. who were able to sort and classify it, you know, um, it didn't quite take in the psychology world. And in fact, he was apparently widely criticized for yeah. introducing this book where it did take off was with educators because teachers read it and said, yeah, I know this. You know, I know like, this yeah, kid. of course. I see this kid. Yeah, I fourth, know. I fourth see row back on the left day. side. <laughs> exactly. I see this happening every day. So that, you know, those are my, that's, I guess if I had an origin story, that's, that's a big one. Um, I don't do work like that anymore. Although, well, maybe I should say that I do because what I still am interested in to this day is how, you know, we create forms of knowledge in this world, right? It's not 
we don't all just write out our knowledge. You know, it doesn't all exist in books. We sing our knowledge. We write plays that tell stories that are important to the way we understand the world. We make sculptures. We paint. We write poetry. You get the picture. Yeah. We cook. Mm-hmm. We, you know... <laughs> We paint houses, whatever it is, right? We have different forms of making this world and uh, why we consistently come back to just, you know, reading, writing and, and arithmetic still, right? Like, um, of course they matter. I'm not going to ever argue do. that they yeah. don't, right? But that there are different ways of even understanding those pursuits, right? One of the programs that I or I should say we call it an emphasis area in my department. I work in the curriculum instruction department okay. at Penn State. I also work in the School of Visual Arts at Penn State. Those are in two different colleges. In the curriculum instruction department, I work in an emphasis area called um, language, culture, and society. And it's a very, at the graduate level, it's a very interdisciplinary space where we tend to get students who are thinking like, yeah, you know, I'm really interested in, um, uh, you know, uh, early uh, uh, children's literature and, you know, sort of cultural identity that might be built into a book. I might be interested in the ways in which... um, you know, a YouTube video counts as a form of literacy. I might be interested in graphic novels as a form of literacy. So, you know, we, it's great. I have a home where I can think about these things. Yeah. And I had, I did have a one doctoral student who graduated whose a good chunk of his dissertation was a graphic novel. He wrote some other essays too. Hmm. He wrote a graphic novel as part of that. And, um, you know, I've been able to carry forward, I think, that passion with how, um, we produce these different, you know, forms of expression in the world that really should be valued and taken more seriously. And they begin, yeah. I think, with teaching and arts in school, like you, yeah. right? Oh, thank you. Teacher, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very fascinating. And, and I think there's, there's definitely uh, validity and importance to pulling from multiple like like we said earlier multiple perspectives and pulling together and trying to get a clear picture of of what it is that's going on and trying to limit yeah limit uh data collection to just reading and writing um is somewhat of an insult to humanity <laughs> in, in a certain Isn't aspect it, yeah <laughs> you know um but yeah so let's let's shift a little bit um sure. just to talk a little bit more about maybe some of the research that you are doing and, and how it ties into the two colleges that you're involved in Sure. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's essentially three interrelated areas of, of my work. I'm the overarching concern that I've developed over the years has really been working in or with communities that experience social, a cultural, uh, racial marginalization. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been working in a community for, um, since graduate school intermittently uh, that um, has been the focus of my work, which I'll mention in a moment. And I would say the three related areas are um, first one is I'm really interested in the art forms and practices that arise from local and ethnic community interests and concerns. Um, We often talk about that as vernacular culture. So in uh, 
in folk anthropology um, and community studies, vernacular culture usually refers to sort of local everyday practices that are embedded in a community that makes a community what it is, right? right. Or, you know, and, and defines a certain culture for itself, right? Sure. Like if, if we can think about culture as just sort of the kinds of beliefs, the conventions, um, the kind of knowledge and the stories we tell ourselves, it's kind of a culture, right? Um, I'm also really interested in contemporary art practices. So um, contemporary art, a lot of us think about like modern art, but I think mm. a, a fewer people are really kind of, um, or I think fewer people understand what contemporary art practice is or what it means. My art education program really has a focus on that. We focus on a lot of living artists um, who often are in communities, right? Or community artists, but also professional ones. Sure. Um, in particular, the ones that interest me engage in, um, uh, or I should say the, the contemporary art practices, right? Practices of these artists how might they inform our pedagogies and ways of teaching, right? So um, how we might think about, say, how someone goes about an art practice of, you know, community installation art, right? Where they might be interviewing community members, which many do to mm -hmm. form their installation or performance pieces, right? That's their art practice, but could we think about those practices for teaching art or maybe even other subject matters, right? So okay. um, how might we think about, I, and, and one of the things I do is I uh, work in a teacher certification program, an art teacher certification program. So we do a lot of this kind of work in our, in our class, thinking about contemporary art practices and what, okay. they might, what they might bring for us in terms of thinking about teaching in an art classroom. Um, I'm, also really interested in research methods and some might just want to hit the snooze button when they hear that but <laughs> i actually really love it um so well, and that's part of the the i've, I've said it probably a hundred times on this podcast but i mean that's the reason for this podcast is to try to bridge that gap between people hear the word research and they go Ugh. right but there's <laughs> such value to it and in order and to try to pull the value out of that and present it in an applicable applicable Am I saying that word right? Applicable. Yep. Applicable way. There you go. You're good. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I mean, th there's such value in doing that. So sorry, continue. No, you're right. And um, and the kind of research I do is, you know, I, I don't work a whole lot with numbers. I'm not a quantitative researcher. Uh, I am what they call a qualitative researcher, which means I dabble in words. I do, you know, I I tell stories, if you will, but I, I do it through a kind of analytical lens and certain, you know, certain things that yeah. I look for in terms of making sure something's valid and all that. But yeah. I also, um, and this gets back into my, my lifelong passion about the arts, is that I do something also called arts-based research methods. So in my field that I'm in, um, which, you know, art education, um, and uh, also educational anthropology, um, sometimes what we do is we mix artistic practices as methods for our research. We might take some cues, for example, for the way artists might um, you know, think about drawing as an interactive method with a community, right? So there are artists that do that. So you know, how might we think about 
drawing as a potential method, you know, in addition to maybe the traditional sit down interview, which we all probably have the image in our mind when we think about an, you know, a right. research method. Um, as an anthropologist, I was trained in doing field work. So it means kind of like a being there, which is difficult in the age of COVID-19 right <laughs> yeah. now, but how, do you, how are you there? But yeah, the idea of being there, of participating in a local practice. Um, for me, I, you know, anthropology means being in somebody's classroom, um, kind of hanging out with kids, hanging out with the teacher, interviewing teachers and kids about whatever it is, right? Whatever it is I'm researching, right? Might be a particular curriculum um, or an issue. Um, and so a, an arts-based approach might also include like, gee, maybe if I am interested in researching an art classroom and, you know, what kinds of teaching and learning are, are happening there, maybe I want to sit down and do a drawing journal with some students. Maybe we draw together for a little while and maybe out of the drawing come some really compelling conversations, right, that happen because we're not focused on this sort of rigid sit down interview um we're drawing together yeah. and more, maybe more the observational and and uh integrated than just question answer yeah. question answer yeah exactly right and it's and it's something you do together and so the drawings themselves also become part of the data you know what did you produce together how might you talk about what you produced together right. um there's all different kinds of ways to think about arts-based research and um, there's there's different words that people describe combining um, arts and research together. Another term that's used that comes from my colleagues in Canada and is filtering here um, is research creation, which I love that as the hyphen is between research and creation, hmm. right? So like, yeah, research as creation and creation as research. So, you know, to be working that hyphen a little bit and thinking about how you know, how might we think about research as a type of creation in the world, but also how we might think of, you know, uh, photography, right? Or uh, printmaking as a, uh, a, a type of research practice too, right? Like artists research all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, art teachers, music teachers, research all the time, right? Absolutely, like, to, yeah. you know, I'm sure you do when you prepare a certain piece with the, I think you said you taught elementary music? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'd be curious to hear what kind of research you do for preparing, you know, preparing yeah, for, I mean, preparing uh, for your in kids. Terms of, in terms of the song, I usually try to give historical context to the kids. Like uh, my third graders, we learned the Star Spangled Banner. So I tell them about the author and, and the vision and everything. And it kind of gives you a, a different lens for for the art yeah, yeah there's absolutely absolutely some research that goes into it yeah sure and um do you ever talk about the the melody itself and how impossible it is to sing no that i kind of just say i kind of just tell them that it's a really hard melody to sing and just to do their best <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean because i you know i think that's also a really interesting uh, piece of there's there uh, and I use research to mean just like looking up what, you know, how people have talked about even teaching the piece. Right. Sure. Like, I mean, I mean, uh, if you want, if you want to stretch it, you can say that, you know, any of the Facebook groups that you might be a part of and, and you step in there to have conversations with people, that's research for, you know, teaching your class. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, if we think of research as being 
I want to be careful of the word systematic, but I do think there's there's something de- deliberate about it. It's a it's weird. We're deliberately trying to inquire into something, and we're doing it in a deep way, right? Not just like reading Wikipedia and that's the research for the day. <laughs> I have to I have to remind my kids, like you know, when you're doing research for your classes, you know, don't just go to this YouTuber, you know, like verify it, right? Like look at other sources, look at books, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that idea of you know. Um, I would say some kind of sustained, um, um, in, uh, you know, inquiry, right? That is serious right. and that you are really doing the work of trying to verify certain things um, uh, or, you know, just... Because um, yeah, there's, there's the pre-research that. that goes into the research. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, I got to do so, all, your, all your backgrounds before you even... Because, I mean, whatever study that you're doing, there very well could be a study that's done the exact same thing already. So you got to make sure you find that and find the answers that they got out of it. And if you're just replicating it, then document that it's a replication and do it all the right way. Yeah, there's there's a lot that goes into um, research in general, um, obviously outside of the results that come out of that research. Yeah. And, you know, some, right. Yeah. And exactly what you said is what I say to my graduate students on the importance of doing a lit review, right? When it's right. That's like I couldn't think of the terminology, but yeah, the literature. Yeah. The literature review. Yeah. Right. That's why it's important to see like how your ideas, you know, what's fit into the, what's, the puzzle of, of the current research. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously you're, you're doing a lot of stuff and it's all integrated. So, um, so interestingly, um, I wanted to touch though briefly on, so, I mean, the first three of, of your title, the first three kind of make sense to me, professor of education, arts education, mm-hmm. music education, and then you get to Asian studies. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just take us down that, cause you had mentioned, uh, taiko drumming, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I believe comes out of Japan, um, and the work does. that you've done yeah. with that. Um, yeah. so what's, what's your involvement with, with that community and what's some of the work that you're doing with them? Sure. Yeah. So the affiliation is a kind of courtesy nod to the fact that my work has dealt with Asian, mostly Asian American issues, um, mm-hmm. and specific, more specifically Japanese American issues. Um, when I was a graduate student, I, uh, studied out West and, um, there's a active Pacific Rim culture, you know, mm-hmm. up up and down the West Coast and a lot of different art practices. And one of the really fairly well-known ones, I, I guess you could say, is, is taiko drumming. And taiko is the, the Japanese word for drum. And it also refers to the art of the drum. So it's, it's about the physical instrument itself. And it's also about the art of drumming mm-hmm. right so yeah. like all if you the google, if you google taiko drumming and you just look at a video of it i mean it's very artistic their arms are going everywhere and it's just so uniform yeah. Uh, yeah. And what they do there's a ton of preparation that goes into it yeah there's a lot of like what we would you know sort of aesthetic configurations right, right? i mean those movements you were just you know um I know your viewers can't see, but I can yeah. see <laughs> yeah. go up and respond. Right. There's, there's a lot of choreographed movements and that's yeah. a kind of aesthetic practice of mm. Tycho. Um, there's, there's a lot of aesthetic practices that go into it. Even the way that you're standing as a kind of martial arts form that helps ground you. So yeah. I, I, you know, I'd always been interested as you can't, as you could probably guess by now in the, podcast super interested in the arts and i'm also really interested in the arts as cultural practices 
and what that means for the groups who practice them, how that might give voice to groups in the world, especially those who might be systematically marginalized or oppressed. Um, and while I was in grad school, I saw a, a Tycho group actually as part of class. We were, I was taking this really cool course called the arts and the creation of mind. My advisor devised it and was co-teaching it along with some other, you know, like a drama professor. He was, he was a professor of art education, had a background as an artist and, but it was co-taught with a music professor and a drama professor and another, like a painting art professor. It was a really great class. And the music professor showed us Tycho and wanted to, talk about sort of like how, you know, what's the history of Tycho practice? Uh, where does it come from? Why did it come into the United States? And I was quickly learning that this was a, a cultural practice that was related to um, thinking about issues of ethnic identity. And in Japan, you know, there's, a, everybody plays Tycho. There's something like, you know, 5,000 groups in, in Japan. Heavens. I haven't looked at that number in a long time, but that was a number that I, I used to use in my, my research. Um, yeah, I think it's, everyone basically does it. And it came over here um, with, a, with a few people, um, trying to remember his names. He's Sensei Tanaka. I can't remember his first name, Sensei's you know, the, the um, term for teacher. Yeah. He, he's credited with being one of the first to bring it over to the States. Um, and it really all happened post-World War II. So that's right. relevant too because Absolutely. of the um, Executive Order 9066 issued by President Roosevelt, which called for the evacuation and incarceration and imprisonment, or I guess, yeah, the evacuation and incarceration of all Japanese American citizens after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right. World War II, 1942. So, you know, that left quite a stain on the Japanese American community in terms of trauma and for the rest of us too. Uh, and, 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 and recovery, right? So, you know, what right. happens yeah. when you, are released from a, you know, a, 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 a prison, right? Which you've been taken from your home. Maybe your mm -hmm. businesses were uh, stolen, right? Um, maybe you no longer have a home to go back to what happens. And um, I, I believe Sensei Tanaka brought this form. I'd have to double check on this. Mm -hmm. So don't quote me, but I think it was in the 60s where he was bringing over the musical form to the States and also trying to figure out like, how does it work also within the United States, right? Sure. How might we use this as a vehicle for positive identity, right? Moving forward, right. how might Tycho be a uniting kind of art form where we, you know, we move forward from, from what happened. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I mean, that's part of the challenge personally that I face with, with using some multicultural and international songs is you trying to find that balance between, well, how do I uh, keep the authenticity of the piece when we don't have the instruments that it would be played on originally? Um, yes. But then how do I also integrate it with the population that I'm teaching, which for the most part, isn't that culture at all. So, I mean, where's that, where's that crossroads? But I mean, the idea of arts and music being uh, kind of used as, as a healing process, like you mentioned, um, 
I don't think is is new. I think that's <laughs> people often kind of fall towards towards arts and and music as as healing uh, practices, which is a statement in itself. <laughs> um, want to transition just a little bit just to sure. talk about um, so the the work that you do with Walking Lab um, kind of pulls all of this together a little bit, right? It in an odd way it does, even though it has nothing to do with psycho. <laughs> Not uh, on the surface, but just the yeah, the, the notion of <laughs> yeah. of culture and art um, being yeah. intertwined and and being malleable. Yeah, it does, and I I do want to give a shout out to people who have made all this possible. First of all, I want to give a shout out to PJ and Roy Hirabayashi, who were the uh, directors and the and the founding members, among a few others, of San Jose Taiko. Uh, gotcha. I consider them. Uh, I consider PJ a, a friend um, and a mentor and just a valuable colleague. And so valuable, in fact, that when I was approached by Stephanie Springer, who led the walking lab, leads the walking lab and, and basically uh, runs it now with uh, Sarah Truman, uh, Stephanie had approached me with this grant idea on walking. And walking research has really proliferated. I mean, that might sound strange to listeners who are like, what? Walking? Really? Yeah. Google there's it. The psychology of walking. <laughs> yeah, there's a psychology of walking. There are artists, walking artists now, uh, lists of, of, of artists. If you Google it, you'll, you'll find it. And also walking as a research method. Um, historically, it's had a long practice in anthropology where it's like a walking interview where you walk and you talk um, or a walking tour. Uh, so when Stephanie presented me with the idea like, hey, I'm going to submit a proposal to the um, she was applying for a partnership grant, which would allow for international partners to really just kind of come together around research that they were doing or were embarking on around walking and the possibilities of walking, mm -hmm. um, which when we started, you know, we, there, there were a number of people doing this stuff, but we were really trying to coordinate efforts on this. Right. So it involved me, it involved um, obviously Stephanie's work and her then graduate student, she's now graduated and, and a scholar in her own right, uh, Sarah Truman, um, their work in Canada, and it involved also some colleagues in um, Australia as well. And each of us had radically different projects. And I approached PJ Hirabayashi, who I mentioned earlier, right. because Stephanie said, well, who would you like to work with on this? You need a community partner. And I, immediately, PJ popped into my head. And I think it, she popped into my head for two reasons. We had been out of touch for years. Um, I ran into her at a Tyco conference when I helped to co-found a, a Tyco club here at Penn State with a student, ran into her, and it was great to see her again. So she'd been in my mind a little bit, um, always enjoyed um, working with her and studying the Tyco group. And she was on my mind because I remembered the walking tour that we did when we were studying Tyco and how important that was, how that really situated everything I was learning in the classroom space, you could say the studio, um, how it actually situated it in a, in, in a town, right? In a geographical center uh, and meeting actual people, right? <laughs> Whose right. lives were deeply affected, you know, by um, the executive order, right? That incarcerated Japanese Americans 
um, and and if not directly, perhaps indirectly, sure. right? Um, but also, you know, the young people in the community that we were meeting as part of Tycho or on that walk who were imagining, you know, a future, right, in Japantown, what did this place mean to all of them? That really stuck in my mind. The other thing that stuck in my head was something that PJ had mentioned at some point around uh, the local community museum there. So, um, JAMS J is the acronym, the Japanese American Museum of San Jose. And they had, uh, it was all volunteers. So the volunteer docents would give walking tours of the town. So I rang her up and said, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. So she's my community partner. Um, I, you know, really want to uh, I um, give a shout out to her because there's no way I could do this work without her. Sure. Um, she herself has a really deep interest in community activism. Um, she's been involved in Asian American activism and concerns um, since she was a student herself. And uh, we crafted this project. At first we were going to just interview the docents um, the, the docents in and of themselves who give the tours are really um, interesting to focus on because most of them had survived um, in, um, the incarceration and imprisonment. The um, docents are the, the volunteers at the museum? Yes. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah. The, no, the right. volunteers at the museum yep. who would give, you know, you walk in, oh, I want to tour the town. Sure. And they would give a tour. And, the, and I should describe, this is uh, San Jose, Japantown. I don't know if I mentioned that yet. I should have mentioned that up front. I think so. Okay. So it's, it's in San Jose. San Jose is a huge, huge metropolitan center. But within that area, there are historic plaques everywhere that chronicle the history of Japanese, Japanese Americans coming to that area, yeah. to Santa Clara Valley. Um, it also chronicles Chinese Americans coming to the valley and Filipino Americans. Um, they all settled in that area and uh, in and around Japantown even. And it chronicles that. And, and what's also interesting that some of the local plaques are about uh, people in the community, right? So you might get a tour by someone whose face is on a plaque, oh, which there you happened go. <laughs> to me. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of memorials to the incarceration. Um, there's also a lot of public art in the area. So there's a lot of places that um, the docents could take people. And we started that. We, we got tours from about three people. And it quickly became clear to both PJ and me that, you know, there, there were a lot of personal stories coming out yeah. in docent tours, right? Because how can Actually, you not get personal yeah. when it's about your lived experience, right? Um, and we realized, well, you know what? I bet everyone's got a story in this town, right? Everyone's got a yeah. story. Who doesn't have a story? Sure. So what if we decided to ask for a walking tour from other people who live here, right? Hmm. And we just kind of developed a very simple prompt, which was, if you could take me on a tour of your town, where would you take me and why? And it became interesting really fast because what we realized was, you know, you could call it a walking tour, you could call it a walking interview, but that wasn't really getting to the heart of it. What we realized is that people were telling stories and stories to, to us 
felt a lot deeper than an interview. You know, it wasn't just a back and forth Q&A, right? People were delving deep into their own autobiographies, into other people's biographies, into the public history of the town, into their own remembered experiences, to their future imaginings of this town. And it quickly became the case that we thought, no, this is about, people are storytelling, right? Yeah. Not in terms of making things up. They're telling, they're telling. Yeah, they're telling their story. Yeah. Yeah. So we found our name, which uh, for the project, which we quickly called Story Walks. And we like to align that together as one word to kind of suggest the fact that walking and storing are completely entangled, right? So, you know, people are walking as they're telling their stories and that really matters right because it becomes this fully sensory experience and walking and And you might smell the bakery right and they might be like oh let's go there i'll take you there first you know um or you meet you meet up with someone on the street and the whole tour detours into something else um and it it also became clear to us that story walking which we kind of created mm-hmm. as a word uh, for this was really also about what we call placemaking, which is this idea that sure, we all live in these geographical areas. They've got longitudes, they've got latitudes, they've got, you know, mountains or valleys or rivers, mm-hmm. but what really makes a place? Is it that, or is it the ways in which we inhabit them, create our experiences, create our stories, um, you know, like create a sense of belonging for ourselves and others, right? Like, so people, you know, in my world call that placemaking, right? Um, So we realized that that's what people were really kind of doing with these stories. These were place-based stories. They were making in in some ways the the places as they were telling their stories and as they had lived there. Um, and also, I think, you know, I, so I, I, I paused there because I was reminded that I shared my data with a neurologist who happens to be part of the arts and design research incubator that I've been affiliated with for a few years. He's like our in-house neurologist, <laughs> actually having a second life now as a sculptor. He, uh, he was a doctor, a, a medical doctor for many years, uh, worked in some um, uh, really serious situations like refugee camps um, and and very interested in brain research, how the brain works, how the mind works. And some of it comes out in his sculpture now, but I, I sat down with him. I'm like, Hey, I've got this data on walking <laughs> with me and tell me what you see and what's going on. And, you know, he had a lot of really interesting things to say about the brain, what's happening with the brain as we walk, as we're talking in terms of like, you know, the key thing that's different is that when you're in a sit-down interview with somebody, you know, kind of like what we are now, we're, we're sort of stationary, right? Yeah. There's not a mm-hmm. lot of ambient things happening. Fortunately for me, my door is closed and my dog, <laughs> my did. dog is not bounding. That's hilarious. There, right? I've got my, my, my two dogs are on the other side of this wall and my fingers are just crossed every time I'm doing a podcast that they're not going to bark at the, somebody walking down the street. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've got my kids uh, watching after the dog right now, but you know, so, and it's a fairly, well, we might argue not fully controlled as we're in our home context, but it's a fairly controlled setting. Right. When you are out of a controlled setting, you know, when you are walking, I mean, there's multiple surprises happening. There's multiple sensory experiences. They are, in fact, um, you know, when, when you're asking people to tell a story about their lives, that's not for nothing, right? Like mm-hmm. they're walking and a smell or a, or a sound yeah. enters into our sphere and they're taken 
back into a context, right? Or they are reminded of something that maybe didn't hit them before. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very, very active environment. Um, yeah. And very cool. Yeah, very, very cool stuff. I guess my my one thing is it's it's very easy to see at least in this conversation uh, how this could be applied to um, art and music and and some of these uh, art uh, classes. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would you say to a homeroom teacher or a science teacher? Like, what, oh yeah, what information uh, are you getting from this research that would be beneficial for them? So it is. It's it's really relevant to anyone teaching history. Uh, I've had feedback from teachers who have been in these workshops um, about the relevance, which has been really helpful for me to think with. Sure. I had actually a science teacher or an, ele an elementary teacher whose like real main love of elementary teaching was in the sciences. Yeah. So she, uh, she came along with um, one of my, one of my colleagues who's a science educator and then someone in the department of geography and all three of them after doing a, a kind of sensory walk that I just roughly talked yep. about mm -hmm. there. Um, said, wow, we can really see the direct relevance. You know, imagine doing an ecology walk. You know, what if we mm -hmm. did a walk along a creek bed with certain prompts, you know, questions that students might, you know, think about, like, uh, what, what could we do for thinking about a, a, a sustainability walk, right? What kind of prompts could we have for children to be thinking about while they're walking? Um, someone actually, one of the faculty members who attended from the Department of Geography is from South Africa. And he also brought up the privilege of walking. Who gets to walk where? You know, when is walking safe? So the politics of walking, who gets to walk where, right? Because of our race or because of uh, the neighborhood we live in or sure. because of our gender. Sure. We, uh, this comes up a lot with some of the um, uh, female participants who take the workshop with me, we yeah. talk about like issues of boundaries, issues of transitions, who's safe to walk, who gets to walk everywhere, sure. who doesn't, right? So the politics, the politics of ambulation and disability and ability comes up. So, you know, why mm -hmm. walking? What is the word walking privilege, right? Um, so other forms of ambulation, what does it mean to move in a way that, you know, someone in a wheelchair, someone on crutches, right. um, what are the politics of walking for them? What are the politics of movement for them? Yeah. How do they access things that we, mm. you know, others of us who may not use crutches or wheelchairs take for granted every day? Um, for, you know, history teachers, you, you can really get into some interesting work, I think, with children um, asking people in the community to take them on a tour, right? Where would you take me and why? And they can videotape it and they have lovely oral walking histories, right? Of the community. Yeah. And I think that plugs well into English, um, you know, writing and, and, and literacy practices as well, because um, a walking tour could easily be something that students transcribe and write about, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, or they themselves write out a script for their own walking tours or, you know. So I, I offer these because some of these ideas are mine, but also because I've had enough teachers attend who say, oh, I see the relevance for my classroom in the following ways. So they help me understand how this is relevant. So yeah. I thank them. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And if somebody is interested in learning more about uh, these walking labs or, or doing these walks, um, do you have a good place to send them to, to learn more about it? 
Um, yeah, sure. So the walking lab, just to be clear, is um, the brainstorm of Stephanie Springe and um, Sarah Truman. Stephanie is part of the grant out of Canada that I was talking about, yep. created a website that um, part of our mission was not to generate a report for the foundation, but to actually create a resource that would be helpful for other people interested. Yeah, so yeah. we have walkinglab.org. .org. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. Walking we'll, uh, lab being one word. Yeah. That oh. is really now run by, the grant is over and Stephanie runs mm -hmm. it now, but you'll be able to find all kinds of readings, all kinds of people who um, have practiced different kinds of walks. You could learn about all the different walks that people do. Um, she used to host virtual walking residencies okay. where like a walking artist would propose to be accept, you know, to pr propose a walking idea and yeah. then she'd accept them and they'd <laughs> kind of do it and then like report on it. Um, there's lots of readings. So my work is featured on that, but the walking lab is really Stephanie's project. Gotcha. Um, and also I'm happy to talk to people about, uh, uh, if they're interested in doing walking activities in their classroom, yeah. whether Perfect. they want to consider it arts-based or not. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I spent uh, a little bit of time on the walkinglab.org uh, website and it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff on there to, to dive into. So that's pretty cool. And we will link uh, yeah. all, all that and everything that we talk about as always will get linked in the show notes page. So they can go check those out. Um, yeah, this has been this has been fantastic. Great conversation. Is there anything that you wanted to wrap up with before we head to our exit ticket questions? I would say another useful website for art teachers in particular, but really for anyone's use. Um, if you're interested in learning more about contemporary art practices, which is a really cool and diverse field, uh, the Art Twenty One website, hmm. Art Twenty One dot org. I believe you can do the link later, but um, Art21 is a really, really great resource. They, they do produce curriculum guides. I think it's all free. Most of it is free. Um, there's a lot of videos with artists. So like interviews with artists that show how they work. Um, very, very approachable. Um, there's texts uh, that you can, you know, you can read interviews. Uh, really useful information on learning about not just walking, there are some walking artists featured, but learning about just like what does contemporary art practice mean and how might I use it in my classroom as an art teacher or, you know, as an English teacher or as a science teacher who might be interested in artists who work on environmental issues, for example. So. Hmm. All right, cool. I'll have to send that over to my art teacher at my school. And oh, see yeah. If, see if she knows about it and or uh, uh, yeah. checks it out. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, um, before we read, wrap up, uh, just to close the loop, I'll give you 30 seconds. How do you design or excuse me, how do you define a curriculum theorist and an educational anthropologist? So curriculum theorist is someone who thinks so if you think about curriculum as a body of knowledge, right? A body of knowledge that somehow becomes sanctified that all of us agree to teach and learn. Um, you can imagine that there's a politics associated with that too. Sure. Who's making these decisions? Whose voices are included? Whose voices are not included? Curriculum theorists tend to study those big questions of okay. what is knowledge? What is knowledge worth knowing? Whose voices are included? Who are not? Um, what what does curriculum look like? How should we be thinking about designing curriculum that matters 
There you go. Oh, I didn't define and educational anthropologist. There you go. And that one. <laughs> uh, someone, I think, who is really interested in studying questions pertaining to culture. Culture with a small c. So I don't just mean culture like different countries, you know, different nations. I mean um, the idea that education isn't just a psychological, you know, phenomena in which mm. we're learning internally, but there's a lot going on with um, education as a cultural, social practice too. The beliefs and norms that govern, you know, how we teach, uh, the beliefs and norms governing how we assess student learning, what we think of as, you know, intelligent or not intelligent. Sure. These are all cultural beliefs and practices. So that's what educational anthropologists do is they study those and they throw them into question, right? There you so, go. And yeah. cycles back then, it obviously cycles back to the curriculum theorist. And yeah, see, so, creates so an welcome dialogue. to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to my world. This is how all this stuff interrelates. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you again for your time. And let's head over to our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask everyone. And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation that uh, all teachers should go read? It was hard to choose just one, but sticking, oh, always is. <laughs> sticking with sort of what I talked about today, I'm going to recommend a book that's a little older now by someone who's no longer with us. Um, it's called Variations on a Blue Guitar, and it's a hmm. series of lectures that um, Maxine Green delivered as part of uh, the Lincoln Center Institute of New York. Okay. which was a, a center that focused on something called aesthetic education. There are beautiful lectures on the topics of imagination, transformation, um, educational reform, excellent standards, cultural diversity, um, and how the arts play a significant role in that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Very cool. All right. Second question then is, uh, I know you've, you've already uh, referenced a couple sources, but do you have another source um, that teachers should go check out uh, based on the research that you're doing? Gosh, I did mention those. I think the Walking Lab, Art 21, um, I, I might have to think a little bit about that. Okay. Um, well, yeah, if, if one pops into your head, you know, later on, or if you just want to forward it to me, um, anything that you send me, I'll, I'll just post then underneath that one. Okay. But yeah, sure. we've, we've got those other two that you had already mentioned. So that's great. Sure, sure. Question number three, then, is what advice would you give to teachers, uh, especially those who are just starting out their careers? I will say what I tell my own students. I, I teach um, uh, pre-service teachers who I, I teach them in one of the last classes they have before their student teaching. Mm -hmm. And usually the advice goes something like this. Don't think you have to know everything. Uh, call in other people into your classroom you know, call in uh, parents, call in other teachers. You don't have to be the expert on everything. And in fact, I think it's a really great model for students to have in terms of seeing how adults and teachers might work together to build knowledge. Yeah. Um, and also that, you, you know, um, learn from your kids as well. Learn from the students. They have a lot of knowledge themselves and they can often help you define the curriculum, create the curriculum. That's one piece of advice. The second piece of advice I have is um, if you desire to change the world, right? So some students <laughs> I have are really yeah. fired up, ready to implement some big changes, right? Yeah. Um, start small, 
you know, figure out what is already happening at the school that you are teaching in. Mm-hmm. Figure out what is, uh, be the cultural anthropologist, be the ethnographer, right? What go. are the cultural beliefs of the school? What are the norms? What are the yeah. traditions? Find those things and see how much change you might be able to work from within those starting points. Um, those are usually the two pieces of advice I give. There you go. Yeah. And especially, you know, hopping back to that first one, the needing to be the expert, because um, you, you kind of <laughs> are, you, you're expected to be the expert on teaching that's you know but good lord i mean four years of of classes and a semester of uh you know being in practice certainly doesn't make you an expert so yeah absolutely reach out to people when you need help and uh yeah great great advice thank you for that and can i just add one more thing if you don't find it yeah if you don't find it locally go online there are communities of teachers out there that would love to help you out right get you over that hump of like oh my gosh i have no idea this came up in my classroom what do i do right right yeah yeah. absolutely very cool all right um if anybody wants to reach out to you has questions about what we talked about or otherwise just wants to find you online where would be the best place to send them yeah um my email they people can email me at kap17 at psu.edu i have a presence on linkedin I have a presence on academia.edu. I don't have my own website. I'm actually shocked at myself, but like, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm a little technologically behind. Oh, that's all right. Um, <laughs> so we'll I, sure, yeah, we'll, we'll find you and, and link up both of those things in case anybody okay. wants to reach out to you. Uh, they can yeah. just go to the show notes page to do that. So, uh, all right, Dr. Kimberly Powell, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me today. And, uh, best wishes on all of your COVID related teachings coming this fall and uh, all your research moving forward. Yeah. And to you too. Good luck with your COVID music teaching practices. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) Have a good one. You too. All right. A big thank you to Dr. Powell for sharing such a uh, a cool uh, research project with us. And uh, I definitely highly recommend checking out uh, walkinglab.org. Uh, You can easily spend a couple hours just sifting through the content that they have on there. And if you're really interested, I learned that uh, all of the research has been compiled into a book titled Walking Methodologies in a More Than Human World. So if you're curious about that, I have a link to that on our show notes page, again, at jabadoo.com slash show 14. Uh, Yeah, there's been so much research in the last uh, decade or two about the benefits of walking, just from exercise to mindfulness and now to being an art form and a way of allowing uh, this concept of placemaking to happen. So uh, I definitely got got to learn about and consider uh, a lot of the benefits to incorporating walking as a way of learning into our classroom, and I hope you did too. That'll about do it for me. Again, uh, show notes page, jabadoo.com slash show 14. Check out our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash jabadoo. Uh, what else? Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, it's on the homepage, jabadoo.com. And until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, 
please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. And that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content. And it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.